Let's start. Since tonight is Fat Tuesday and tomorrow starts Lent, I thought I would do um, something a little bit different from what we usually do. I'm not going to read a lyric poem after our prayer tonight. I'm going to go straight to our work. But for our prayer tonight, I'd, I'd like to do something different, as I said. Um, um, I want to thank Mary Jo for her suggestion last week to have this dinner. <laughs> it's always amazing what you guys do when um, when we pull together a dinner. Once again, it's just splendid. Um, I'm sure nobody here is going to be easier about having a discussion about all these women authors when we're eating a having a meal like this. But you can blame you can blame Mary Jo for that and me because I. Um, agreed to it wholeheartedly. Anyway, I'm, I'm glad we're together. I'm glad we're having this meal. And for our prayer tonight, I want to start um, with a meditation that's taken from the the Magnificat. Um, it was the uh, meditation at the end of the readings this morning for anybody who um, reads those or who goes to Mass. This is the meditation for from this morning. Tomorrow, Lent begins. I just made a short meditation and my resolution for this graced time. I want to practice recollection, penance, and charity. Remember those three things. Recollection, penance, and charity. Recollection, which can exist in the midst of busyness and exterior obligations from which, less than any other woman, I can excuse myself. She's obviously taken up. It takes a, a lot of humility to say that. The soul can be a cell as white and empty of worldly influence as the cell of a monk. The crucifix and some books, that is to say God and work, is what fills the solitude of nuns and monks. This is what can make a woman who is completely flooded with noise and activity solitary. Second, penance. Apart from penance prescribed by the church, I must perform my own, unlike others. And in the trials of my life or the distress of ill health, I shall have plenty of opportunity to deny myself. I'm guessing she's struggling from something, but... Finally, charity, increasingly to make myself all things to all people, to forget myself for others, to be always tolerant and cheerful, to show more love to those around me, to go more to little ones and to the humble. Even in times of debility and physical exhaustion, I must not be as lazy as I have been recently. I must prudently resume my work, but with more energy and perseverance. And always silence. Unless speaking can do some good, not to speak about myself, to be more pleasant than I have been for a while, to smile and share in the joys and pleasures of others when I am physically very tired is more advantageous than when in good health, for the effort is greater. May others see in me only that which can console or do them some good, and may you alone, God, know the silent struggles within me. May Lent be a time of preparation and sanctification. May I perhaps become, O oh my God, your instrument and your apostle for those I love and for those you love. 
servant of God, Elizabeth Dasir. Um, this is our prayer. I offer um, this meditation, Christ, for you as our prayer. Let our Lenten this year be good. Help us to take seriously our promises, um, to genuinely work at denying ourselves, discipline ourselves, our flesh, our appetites, those things that drive our body, and um, equally so, those things of the spirit, impatience, grudging, resentments, defensiveness, all those things that keep us, keep us from receiving you and by receiving you becoming more one with you in all that we do with each other. We offer these prayers in um, our Lord Jesus Christ, in you our Lord. Amen. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to take just a few minutes to um, once again put the work that we're doing into perspective. It's been a strange time, um, as you all know. Um, after our, our readings, um, Dostoevsky and Melville, um, Hawthorne, when we were beginning to move into the modern world, um, I told you that a good friend of mine in New Hampshire was doing Jane Austen, and um, I, I, you got me so worked up about it, um, thinking about what was going on with Elizabeth, that um, I thought seriously about um, doing her, and you know that I made the mistake of saying something about it here, and, <laughs> and all of you went immediately nuts and wanted to do her. You know that for, and for all the time that I was teaching at St. Francis, I didn't do her because I didn't think she spoke um, directly enough to um, um, supernatural theological matters. Um, Pride and Prejudice is, is one of the finest stories on, on romantic love that I know, and, and I've told you all before, more than a few times, if I do get to heaven and see Jane Austen there, I have a, um, a great debt to pay, a great thanksgiving, because she's the one who gave me my domestic eyes. She taught me to see things about our domestic life that I didn't even get from, Ch um, from Shakespeare. But anyway, we did Jane Austen, and you know um, that it sort of blew me away. There were um, a couple of insights that I had that I want to just review quickly, but I want to put it in the context of what we were doing. The editor of the Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice Penguin edition that we're doing is a feminist, and in her introduction she's treating Jane Austen as what she calls a proto-feminist. and she's. She's going back to figures related to the French Revolution and the whole push towards freedom. And, and, and I've said before, that's a position that I, I couldn't disagree with more. Um, Jane Austen is not a feminist. She's not a proto-feminist. She couldn't be more feminine. The feminist movement is encouraging women to look at themselves in terms of political structures that almost could not be more masculine. And one of my concerns about the modern, what's going on in the modern world is, is as women have stepped into the um, social sphere, so they're, they're defining themselves in terms of state context. They've become wards of the states. They're um, employees of the state. Um, they're cloning men. They're doing all the things that men do, and it's a question, serious question in my mind 
whether what they're doing is um, um, faithful to their nature as women, because women are more are different from men, um, or not. And I'm suggesting that um, Jane Austen is offering us something entirely different. One of the one of the points that I've made from her novel is that it's clear from Jane Austen's writing and from Elizabeth's perspective, because most of it is told through a limited thir third person through Elizabeth, that um, I think it's fair to say that one of the things that characterizes women is a greater um, emotional sensitivity. They have an emotional sensitivity to things that men don't. Men tend to live in their heads in structures. Um, um, Jane Austen's sensitivity to the slightest nuances of anything going on between men and women and between people and couples and socially in her world is extraordinary. Um, um, Dickens won't get there. Richardson, you go where you will. Trollope, um, George Eliot is close to it, but she doesn't have the Christian view that Austen does. And um, um, one of the one of the I think discoveries that we came to in our reading of Pride and Prejudice is that in the beginning of the novel, Elizabeth is bright, she's witty, she's perceptive, she carries a pride of which she's not aware. The, the letter that she gets from Dar Darcy will turn her on her head, her world will turn upside down, and she says of herself, she prided herself on knowing herself, and she realized after reading that letter that she didn't know herself at all. She discovered things about herself and what we discover is the woman who is so perceptive, so sensitive, so bright, so witty, so charming, so independent, you know, through most of the first half of the novel, suddenly changes. And that's not what the editor talks about. And what happens after that change, what, you know, in, our, in terms of the literature that we've been reading, what, what the literary people call the peripatia, the turn and the anagnorisis, the recognition, those are terms taken from tragedy, but they apply to comedy as well. After Elizabeth's recognition, she's a changed woman. Um, and there's no way to miss that. Um, we don't see this sparkling, bright, witty, independent. It's not that she loses her independence, but um, the spirit in which she sees everything after that, after reading Darcy's letter, is humility. Um, and immediately after that letter, um, Lydia, remember, goes off to be with the soldiers when they make their move. And the greater part of the second half of the novel is taken up with her elopement. Elizabeth's response to that is shame. She's been self-conscious about her family's failings all along. There's that no, or the, the chapter that opens the third section where she openly expresses her shame of her family. Why anybody would want to marry into her family is a shame to her. And I've read those passages, a number of passages, where she makes a point that the one thing she feels more than anything after that letter from Darcy is gratitude. She doesn't even know yet what he's done. And before that, her response to everything is humility and gratitude. This is not the same woman. And her gratitude will increase, deepen, once she learns what Darcy did for her to spare their family. So we're seeing a different woman, and one of the questions that I asked you in, you know, in, the, in that context is, um, in which case is she more like Mary? And the answer to that is, 
pretty obvious. It's the it's the woman that she becomes, and when she and Darcy meet and and um, both of them are humbled and bring that spirit of humility to everything they do, they're a changed, they're a changed um, man and woman. They're ready for marriage. Um, where was I going with this? Um, one of the points that I had made earlier on when we were reading Jane Austen, because it, it just came to me in a flash, um, particularly because the, the other women writers that line up after her that we're going to read, the short story writer, Eudora Welty, um, Catherine Ann Porter, Flannery O'Connor, um, is that every, every single one of Jane Austen's novels takes love as its central concern. Love was the highest virtue of the Christian medieval world. It was the virtue par excellence. It was the, the, the one virtue that, that distinguished man and made him most like Christ. Um, and we saw that in, in Austin's world, love is the highest virtue and it reaches its completion in marriage. And I suggested that Jane Austen is simply picking up from Shakespeare's comedies because all of his comedies except Taming of the Shrew and, and I could easily fit that into the group but I'm, I, I, want to, I, want to, um, I don't want to go there right now. But all of his comedies are about love and they take a woman as the central figure, not a man. But Jane Austen picks up what she inherited from, from Shakespeare and in some ways Chaucer in the medieval world and takes them farther because she writes novels from the point of view of a woman, a heroine. Um, and so we see a domestic world through the sensibilities of a woman. And what we learn is that um, while love is the highest virtue of man, it only comes to its completion in marriage. Though what Jane Austen makes clear, even if she never quite put it this way, man was meant to love and be loved. The, the source of that is our Trinitarian God. Um, one God, three persons, each completely dwell, indwelling with each other. The goal of marriage is to make um, a couple one. Um, that's an adventure. It properly belongs to the genre of romance and adventure because anybody who's been in a relationship knows what an adventure it is. To love somebody means risking opening oneself to the interior of another with all the sins that that involves. And um, and receiving that and the other person being willing to receive the, the same in you so that we saw that in Dante you know as we as we moved up the Paradiso that that people began to interpenetrate one another um, like God that they were becoming more one with each other while holding on to their individual selves so one of the remarkable things to take away from Jane Austen that we were fortunate enough to get, that we would not have gotten if I would not done her, was this awareness that she is the last person um, to treat love in that way. Name an author, particularly a woman, who takes love and who can show the very best sides of a man and woman attaining a complete love in each other in marriage. Um, after Jane Austen, it closes down. You can go anywhere you want. Conrad, Virginia Woolf, Joyce, um, Henry James. You will not find that. 
So interestingly, in reading her, we, we make a real discovery that what was once considered the greatest virtue of man begins to fade, the whole view of man changes. We're in a Darwinian world, a Freudian world, a Marxist world, a feminist world, and that central importance that um, made, was made so real by Mary's yes and Christ's yes um, begins to fade. So in, in a, just a piece of good fortune, uh, or we can call it that, um, Real discoveries came to us about the nature of the literature that we were going to encounter. Um, when we finished last week, we, we had just um, finished talking about, or were tying up, um, flat, or, uh, Catherine Ann Porter's, um, Catherine Ann Porter's Flowering Judas, and saw that this young woman who was a political activist in the, in the Mexican Revolution, um, went to Mexico to serve this cause. And it was a cause in which men and women were giving their lives in love. And she came to offer her love in the same way. But ironically, what we see is that she becomes so taken up in this revolution, and the last thing that can be said about her is that she learns to love. Um, most of everything of, that she does is for herself. And I asked that strange, that question that had to do with the grammar that I, so, few, so few critics take any notice of, and I think most people wouldn't see it. The story, Flowering Judas, is written in the present tense. And Porter only shifts to the past tense in a, a couple of instances. Two of them deal with lovers, interestingly. And the two lovers that come to her, we go back into the past tense, um, the Pritterix tense, and half those episodes... Um, described to us. And the last time it happens is at the end of the poem when she has this dream about Eugenio. And you remember that Eugenio comes to her and calls her a traitor and says, take and eat. Um, it's connected to the um, Judas tree and the buds coming from it um, and offering them to her. It says, take and eat. It's the Judas tree, it's the tree associated with Judas' betrayal of Christ. And the last words of that dream were, cannibal murderer. And I asked the question, um, what did he mean? How are we to understand? What does he see about her? What does she learn to see about herself in that moment? And what we saw is that um, um, she was a murderer in the sense that she's implicated directly in his death. She gave him the drugs that helped him take his life. And a cannibal in the sense that she feeds off of other people. Everything she does is for herself. Her house, her food, or you know, everything that's taken care of. But she does not love. So one of the things that we learn from Flowering Judas is that Laura has not learned to love, to give herself. And I was going to ask Doc to read that um, passage from Eliot's um, um, Four Quartets because I thought it was so important that um, <coughs> um, we, we don't know what's going to happen with Laura. What we do know at the end of that dream is when she, when she comes out of the dream, she's dropped back into the past tense, not the present. And what we see when we put those shifts in tense together is that um, Porter describes everything that Laura does in the present tense because she's showing she's trapped in it. 
That present tense is going nowhere. It's not headed towards anything. It's not doing anything. She's stuck. She herself describes herself as being trapped. She says she spends her life um, trying to live um, a, a stoicism, to practice saying no, no, no. So we're, we're, we're entering into the interior of a woman who, who apparently is giving her life for this cause, um, while all the while denying, saying no, um, staying closed up in her own world. Um, when it shifts and she's dropped out into the past tense, she enters um, time. Um, when she goes into the Pryderic tech, the, the tense in which most stories are written, I think we're meant to have a sense that um, she's entered time. We don't know what choices she'll make. We don't know where she's going. But we do know that she's had a shocking revelation, and it's put her back in another tense. And that tense at least admits of the possibility of change. The present tense of the whole, the rest of the story before that moment doesn't. So it was a, um, a piece of brilliant um, artistry on, um, on Catherine Ann Porter's part, and an extraordinary honest about the interior of a woman who has not learned to love. We'd already started um, reading um, the women authors, and we saw in Eudora Welty, um, sister and petrified men, petrified man, women who were catty, um, defiant, manipulative, cutting, um, self-centered, um, not very attractive women at all. Um, so when we lined all those things up, we were moving from Jane Austen at a time when there was the possibility of something virtuous in women and good in, in both men and women, to a time in which um, experiencing virtue is rare for us. The novelists, the short story writers are not rendering that for us. They're showing the worst. Um, we've entered a modern world that doesn't look back to high beginnings. You know, we're created by God. Um, we're looking to beginnings that are low. We came from the apes or out of a big bang or something, but nothing admitting of the, of the nobility. Man no longer has a transcendent aspect to his soul. He's a product of forces. So we've entered a, um, a, a world in which in, in so many ways is dehuman, conceived in terms of power, technology, making the world over in our image what we want, but not loving. And um, I asked Doc to, or I was going to ask Suzanne to read that um, passage from Ellie, but let me read it now. Because it's, in, in one sense, it's a wonderful um, um, perspective on Laura, you know, that she's a young girl, she's given herself to a cause, but the dream shocks her. Um, it's a moment of painful self-discovery, and it's a lot like um, um, Elizabeth in Pride and Prejudice when she gets that letter from Darcy and from that point to the end um, Elizabeth is a different wo a woman. She's learned something about herself. She has a greater humility and there's nothing that nothing that she does that is not in humility and gratitude. She's grateful for everything in life so she's not as critical um, she's not as given to criticizing or watching a different woman. This is Elliot from um, Little Gidding. It's in the, I think it's in the, the, uh, 
second part of the poem. I think there are five parts, and this is the second. He says, a little getting. Let me disclose the gifts reserved for age, to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. So this is when you've done all the things that you thought you'd done so well. I mean, it's something that had to come to Laura in Flowering Judas. To set a crown upon your lifetime's effort, first the cold friction of expiring sense, without enchantment. So there's no great illusions, no great enchantments leading you on. Um, remember, Laura lives in disenchantment. She's disillusioned. Everything around her um, leads her to a deeper disillusionment. Everything that she set out to experience is fading. Um, Brugaccio is a, is, presents himself as a Christ figure. He's a savior. He's going he's to bring in a new country. And all he's left are, are people dying behind him. First, the cold friction of an expiring sense without enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit. His body and soul begin to fall asunder. This is as we age, and we're looking back at a life in which we tried or so many of us, I think, try um, to do good. Second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. That's a perfect description of both Laura and um, Elizabeth when they look back and see that all the things that they've done um, leave them now with some shame. Or potentially that with, for Laura. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, but we certainly know um, she's facing something about herself that she's never had to see before. Um, second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. So I'm reading the last part again. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. Then fool's approval stings, and honor stains. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds, unless restored by that refining fire, where you must move in measure like a dancer. That's the call from Christ to love, to take care of what we're doing. Um, so, um, that's where we were. Um, and let me just quickly remind you um, that um, when we closed out, um, or when, when we began to read Austin, when that took us into this um, period in which we're doing women writers, I, I, I sort of made an announcement that we're entering a world of, of um, writings largely by women. And interestingly, except for Jane Austen, who, is, who just precedes it some, but um, it's, it's the world of the feminist, the modern feminist, and all that's um, all that's, you know, all the effects that have come from that ideology. Um, 
So in some strange way that I had not planned, when we read Jane Austen and saw that all of her novels dealt with love and all five of them showed that love is the highest virtue and, and is completed in marriage, and looked forward and saw that no writer after her, none, not a man, not a woman, ever does what she did, it's, a water, it's clearly a watershed moment. We have entered a different world. It's not driven by love, it's driven by vanity, um, self-improvement, self, or sorry, self-aggrandizement, um, self-achievement, the self, self, self everywhere. And I made the argument then, um, in, in contrast to what the editor of that book was saying, that Austen is not feminist, she's feminine that what we see is that women have a greater emotional sensitivity than men. And when women start acting like men, they give up one of their, their defining virtue, really. The amazing thing about Jane Austen is she has this extraordinary emotional sensitivity to things, but she can give words to it. So she uncovers a domestic life in a way men can't. Men live too much in their heads. And at the same time that I I offered that thought, I received these, these passages from um, friends who had been reading some things by John Paul <coughs> and von Balthasar. Um, both, of them, both of them, both of them were highly involved in um, Vatican II. John Paul said this towards the end of his life. A long road led me to discover the genius of woman and providence itself saw to it that the time eventually came <coughs> sorry the time eventually came when I really um, recognized it and was even as it were dazzled by it I think that every man whatever his station in life or his life's vocation must at some point hear those words with Joseph of Nazareth once heard do not be afraid to take Mary to yourself do not be afraid to take means do everything to recognize that gift which she is for you what he's pointing out is his discovery of what he calls the genius, or what I'm calling the glory of woman. And, my, and it raises a question of what feminist, feminism, the feminist movement, has done to strengthen that or undermine it. At the same time um, that that was being said, I, I got this quote from um, von Balthasar in a work called Elucidations. Where the mystery of the Marian character of the church is obscured or abandoned, their Christianity must become unisexual, in parentheses, homosexual. That is to say, one sex, all male. And here's one magnificent German sentence that says it all. The church, since the council, has to a large extent put off her mystical characteristics. She has become a church of permanent conversations, organizations, advisory commissions, congresses, synods, commissions, acad academies, parties, pressure groups, functions, structures, and restructuring, sociological experiments, statistics. That is to say, more than ever, a male church, if perhaps one should not say, a sexless, sexless entity in which woman may gain for herself a place to the extent that she is ready herself to become such an entity. That is, how much of um, what women are doing to themselves is cloning men, sadly, be because they don't have any encouragement to be women. That is, to, s to see in their emotional sensitivity um, 
a grace, even if it can conceal a whore. Because if women go off, go off in their emotions, we know that they can go nuts. They can go through the roof in two directions. Um, <clears throat> but the thing I want to underscore here is this, that at the center of Vatican II was this concern for what then was being called the Marian Principle. And the church was taking different sides on her. They, they were concerned about getting away from what some called um, the ecclesial and liturgical movements that were so important in Vatican II, getting derailed. Um, but, it, um, but they finally resolved the struggles to talk about Mary's place in the church with both of those other movements, the ecclesial and the liturgical, so that um, the, the to call it, the goal, the, the affirmation that Vatican II came away with is Mary's essential place and how important it was to keep the role of woman, of everything feminine, not feminist, everything feminine alive in the church. So interestingly, we picked up these writers, not, it was not my purpose. I wanted to go to short stories and it happened that several of them were women writers, you know, that we read Hemingway short stories and we, and we read that one short story by Faulkner, but the larger number of them were by women. So I inserted Jane Austen into this reading schedule um, against my better judgment and then came out of it stunned by what I'd missed in my earlier readings of her and what critics are missing and what happened when I put all of these women writers together after her. We've entered um, an awful age and um, it seems to me one of the things we can say that if if woman does not discover, rediscover um, what it is that makes her, women can't even today define what it means to be a woman or describe it, it's, it's, it's stunning to me. If we can't, men and women both, but particularly, men and women both, but particularly women, if women cannot um, rediscover what it is that makes them unique as human beings, then it seems to me the downward spiral that I think most of us sense the, the modern world is taking will continue, will get intensified. So by a stroke of good fortune, stroke of good fortune, we are, we are reading all of these feminist writers most of whom are unmasking women, showing the worst, worst sides. And it may be that we have to see the worst sides of those to look back at what we once had with Jane Austen, Shakespeare, Chaucer, Dante, you know, go back. We may have to go back um, to recover, to see what it was we once had and ask ourselves whether they have to be lost or whether those same qualities that led to some of the greatest figures in Chaucer, the, the feminine heroines, to Helena, remember in um, All's Well That Ends Well, and um, Hermione and Paulina in Winter's Tale, um, Portia in Merchant of Venice, to, to go back and see what it is the great writers saw in women and ask ourselves whether they're lost or whether the modern world has um, taken a detour and whether um, it has to be inescapably followed or whether we can change it. And, and I, th I hope it's clear by now that political changes may help, 
but we're basically talking about um, the interior of women and it's there where um, much of the many of the changes that take place come from um, a woman's involvement with God her opening herself to him just as Christ did when he said yes to the Father and when Mary said yes to um, Gabriel that's an interior change um, that the world the world cannot manufacture um, so um, we're we've entered a, a really interesting stage in a reading and it's sort of amazing to me that um, at the center of it are, are women writers and this whole question of um, the peculiar glory the, um, the pure gifts of women what make women um, who they are let me stop here for um, and take any questions or comments okay